Welcome to People and Purpose, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Community Impact Program of global top-tier law firm King of Wood Mallisons. People and Purpose talks to leaders in the social impact sector who are creating positive social change and addressing major justice challenges, objectives which underpin the Community Impact Program of KWM. The podcast seeks to spark a conversation about structural causes of poverty and inequality and generate ideas to help alleviate those global problems. Youth Homelessness Matters Day is held on 18 April and aims to raise awareness and public discussion about youth homelessness so that we can develop sustainable and innovative solutions for not only supporting the needs of homeless youth, but supporting the dreams of homeless youth. Staggeringly, there are 44,000 young people homeless in Australia on any given night. Close to 16,000 of them are under the age of 12. Of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people experiencing homelessness, close to 70% live in severely overcrowded dwellings. In this edition of People and Purpose, I spoke with Bevan Warner, who is the current Chief Executive Officer of Launch Housing, one of Victoria's largest providers of housing and homeless support services with a 75-year combined history and a clear mission to end homelessness. Prior to his current role, Mr Warner was the Managing Director of Victoria Legal Aid, a position he held for over 10 years. Bevan, it's um, fantastic to be able to speak to you today for this podcast and, and welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We appreciate the support of Kingwood Mallisons. I'm going to dive straight in because I've got some, um, some good questions here, I hope, for you. First question I wanted to ask you is really around your organisation. So Launch Housing provides housing and homelessness services to thousands of vulnerable people in Melbourne and it's done so for over 75 years, which is incredibly impressive. Can you please talk us through what Launch Housing's mission is, what your work is all about, and also how you're responding to the global pandemic COVID-19? Yeah, sure. So uh, Launch Housing firmly believes that homelessness is not a natural part of the human condition or a natural consequence of a first world economy. It's a function of choices we make as a society, and we're dedicated to ending homelessness, not to treating it or making the experience of it less severe. So we're proudly working um, on the streets in crisis centres, but also developing permanent supportive housing options and developing new housing stock so that we can pull people straight through from rough sleeping or sleeping in cars or being in overcrowded, unsafe accommodation into a permanent home with the type of support that individuals need to live a long and productive life. Uh, Through this current COVID crisis, we've been busy adjusting our services to make them safe, uh, but continuing to work on the streets. And we've pulled 688 people into emergency accommodation who would otherwise be uh, rough sleeping or sleeping in cars. People have been pushed out of couch surfing situations because the circumstances in that home have got a bit tense. And we've now got these people in emergency accommodation. We're looking for permanent housing solutions for them. Terrific. And look, there's obviously different types um, or different forms, if you like, of homelessness. Are you able to talk us through what those different types are and how they specifically relate to children and young people? Yes. There's about 120,000 people without a home on any one night in Australia. But people who are rough sleeping make up about 7% of those people. Most of the people, the hidden homeless, if you like, are living in overcrowded accommodation 
in refuges, in crisis accommodation, couch surfing, or staying in temporary types of accommodation like caravans or cheap motels or rooming houses without any sense of security about what one week might be uh, from the next. And particularly young people uh, and children, they make up about 40% of that group. So 44,000 children and young people in Australia are homeless. And we know that the consequences uh, for young people and their future prospects are quite dire uh, the longer they're without the safety and security of the home. And, and youth um, homelessness presumably comes um, or, or arises from a mix of factors, whether that be domestic violence, mental health, family breakdowns, financial hardship. Um, many people argue that the real solutions come when we start facing up to the issues, painful root causes. Do you agree with that view? And if so, what really are those painful root causes? Well, I think, yes, prevention's better than cure, but I think the lessons of history will tell us that there will always be a certain flow of people away from trauma towards vulnerability. And that includes, you know, trajectories of trauma into homelessness. But it's really important to avoid stereotypes. Homelessness is an experience. It's not an identity and there's no one pathway into or out of homelessness. But for young people in particular, uh, trauma, whether that's uh, physical or sexual abuse, whether that's neglect uh, in situations where one parent has repartnered, where people don't fit in with siblings, uh, where there's a sense of um, isolation and uh, despair, uh, young people uh, will leave the home and put themselves in vulnerable situations and uh, there are a variety of causes, whether you want to call it abuse, neglect, um, family violence, and tackling those social issues uh, better in the first place will obviously uh, alleviate or reduce the flow of people into you know, precarious housing situations and, and indeed rough sleeping. But you know, it's not only trauma that produces um, homelessness. We have... Uh, bad luck and unplanned life events, um, illness, uh, injury, um, you know, leaving the country for the big city to try your luck and find that that job wasn't really there for you. Um, so with a hollowed out social safety net, uh, with um, unaffordable rents because we preference homes as investment vehicles for private wealth creation rather than a necessity or a human right, Together with trauma, we have a lot of factors that can drive people into an experience of homelessness that might be short um, or it could be prolonged. It depends upon a range of factors uh, unique to individuals and the sort of scaffolding or supports that they have or don't have around them. And Bevan, presumably those issues were very live prior to this global pandemic of COVID-19. Are you and your organisation already seeing um, uh, you know, an increase in youth homelessness? Um, and if so, how is your organisation positioned to respond? Well, we're starting to see, we're starting to see an increase, yes. So um, typically young people uh, might be in severe overcrowding, um, couch surfing, spending their time in, in different places. And with the tension that exists in the community, the anxiety that exists in the community, um, the, the idea that, you know, we need to maintain social distancing, 
you know, the ease and the availability of, of couch surfing um, has, has reduced and some people have come to us for the first time saying they just can't stay anywhere where they used to stay. Um, so we're getting that response right now on our, on our doorstep. The truth is we're not that well set up to deal with it. Um, Victoria spends less than half the national average on social housing as all the other states uh, combined, and that's a Productivity Commission figure. So we don't have enough social housing stock in Victoria to cater for the need. Uh, before we had a health crisis, which became an economic and a social crisis, we had a housing, housing crisis, and those conditions haven't gone away. What we are doing is putting people into short-term emergency accommodation situations, uh, into motels, hotels, some, in some caravan parks, as a stopgap measure uh, whilst the um, height of the pandemic passes us by. Um, and what we really want to make sure is that having collected these people off the streets, um, out of overcrowded situations, out of cars, uh, that we don't drop them uh, when the community's interest fades and uh, we turn away from the public health crisis back to some sense of normalcy and that uh, these people return to very precarious housing situations. That's why we're, we're calling on the government to you know, pursue a spot purchasing program now and to enter into a distressed real estate market and to top up its social housing stock and to acquire some more properties uh, to to vest them uh, with the Director of Public Housing and to produce more social housing options for these people to be pulled straight through to. So, you know, from precarious housing, streets, cars, uh, overcrowded accommodation. At the moment, they're in emergency accommodation in motels, but we need to get them into a permanent home as soon as possible. Mm. Um, Bevan, I'm, I'm also really interested in the impacts of child and youth homelessness it's well known that homelessness can obviously be isolating destabilizing mm. and traumatic for anyone who has to experience it um, its effect on effects on children and young people whose development is you know not yet complete can ob can, you know, can be particularly devastating can you explain a little more about the impact of being homeless on on young people and the sorts of problems that it creates for them at such an early you know point in yeah their sure life? so we we run a, an award-winning education pathways program which is really an intervention to ensure that very young children who are experiencing homelessness with at least one parent are reconnected into the school system because we know uh, from the neuroscience that trauma or you know elevated um, uh, levels of stress for a sustained period it doesn't have to be sort of physical trauma but living in a very tense unstable hostile uh, situation uh, produces developmental delay in children. It affects their ability to learn. So when you combine developmental delay through trauma uh, with disrupted learning because attendance at school is a bit chaotic, you have a situation where smart kids find themselves underperforming and getting into trouble at school because they're not keeping up. It's pretty clear if you don't um, learn to read by about grade three, you'll never read to learn. So we need to intervene early to make sure that children are connected to school, that they master the basics of phonetics and learning to read to set them up for a lifetime of learning because we want to avoid a situation where uh, young people get into high school uh, well behind in their um, ability to keep up in the classroom, believing 
that they're a failure, having all these other things at home uh, that might also be a problem for them. And then as they go through their teenage years, pursuing choices of uh, what we'd call reckless endangerment and getting into trouble with substance misuse and risk-taking that um, becomes uh, a whole series of larger problems, um, uh, meaning that their ability to look after their economic essentials, to rent, uh, to get a job, um, are all diminished because of an experience that they went through as a very young person through no fault of their own, um, homeless and with disrupted learning and developmental delay where the system never really supported them to catch up. So prevention is better than cure. And what we want to do is make sure that young people uh, are assisted with the best possible supports and the best possible chances. If they have an experience of homelessness, it should be short and it shouldn't reoccur again. And to do that, we need to support the circumstances of their particular family. And we can't do that if we don't have enough homes. I'd like to turn specifically to Aboriginal and mm. Torres Strait Islander people and young people who are at risk of or experiencing mm. homelessness. Why is it that there's such a prevalence of homelessness um, amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? And what are the unique, uh, unique needs of our First Nations peoples? Well, I think we, it's, a, it's a simple product of our history. We spent you know, years, um, most of our history, um, denying Aboriginal people existed. Um, and then welfareizing them and then denying them any purchase on economic society by being hostile to land rights. So we've got uh, our First Nations people who don't have as much of an economic hold on Australia as they should have. And that economic fragility plays itself out in um, relative low rates of home ownership, um, disproportionate rates of homelessness, uh, and that's um, an intergenerational reality because of the way in which colonisation occurred and because we've never reached any sort of meaningful um, settlement with First Nations people. So, you know, what do they need? Uh, they need uh, a treaty. Uh, they need uh, access to economic assets. Uh, and they need uh, culturally appropriate supports amongst um, service providers, organisations like mine and others, uh, to make sure that the way in which um, community and family is practised in First Nations people is ac accommodated in the built environment or the sorts of properties that we um, make available to them. And it's obvious, obvious to me and, and to probably to our listeners that youth homelessness is a difficult problem um, and, and some commentators have suggested that difficult problems require holistic solutions. Mm. Do we need a new approach which ensures that schools, real estate agents, social services, businesses and charities work more closely together as a cohesive unit to start to solve this national problem in Australia? Uh, yes and no. I think that it's always better when you might call um, civil society or, or, or interest groups in society uh, want to work together to you know, solve a wicked problem, if you like. Uh, but I wouldn't want to suggest that the solution isn't a government solution, that, um, that uh, somehow uh, charities and um, good-natured businesses should work harder together to solve this problem. I think if we had government 
uh, making it clear that housing was a, a human right. It was a, it was a precondition for an effective, fair and functioning society rather than a, uh, an asset class that was a way to private wealth creation, uh, that we had policies that supported housing as a human right uh, that, uh, rather than um, a commodity that could be traded, then the conditions for eliminating homelessness in society would be much better. And the work then of like-minded uh, businesses and, and, and charities and, as you say, schools and real estate agents would be made much, uh, much, much simpler. So yes and no. Uh, I think we need to change uh, some of the fundamental precepts that we have in Australia about where housing sits in the scheme of things. And I think as a, a country of um, colonisers, we've you know, moved out from the coast and taken control of the land and we've gifted it to ourselves and then we speculated on it. And, it, you know, from a generation to generation uh, point of view, it's been a, a way of private wealth creation for many, many people. Um, and that mindset that it's, you know, an asset class rather than a, a um, you know, an essential. Uh, and we should be managing policies to ensure that the essentials are delivered, you know, before people speculate. That is what's got us into this housing crisis and it's got us into this trouble. I, I hear that point then in relation to policy and the role of, of role of government, but I'm also then interested to know whether you have any specific things that the private sector could be doing um, more of um, or starting to do to help solve youth homelessness. Are there, are there specific things that you would have on a wish list? Well, I think we can. Uh, we need government and the private sector working together. So I think government needs to create the tax breaks and incentives for institutional capital through super funds or High net, worth, high net worth individuals and private investment vehicles to want to invest in social housing. And then the type of social housing that young people might want uh, could be the sort that we're already running. We run two Education First Youth foyers on the grounds of two TAFE colleges. Uh, these are 40 bed specific um, purpose um, student accommodation, which equips young people who are experiencing homelessness with uh, support to re-engage with training and to support them using an advantage thinking model which uh, focuses on their talents rather than their deficits. A lot of young people have had lots of people tell them what they're not on the way through and when, when we get them, uh, we want to focus on what their, uh, their strengths, their advantages, their talents are. And that sort of intervention where we're providing safety and stability uh, connecting to um, uh, training and then an aim uh, with an aim to independent living. Most young people stay for just a little over two years with fantastic results, um, pays its way. Uh, we, we could have more of those things built. And I think as we see government march into the future uh, and in a climate of budget repair, post-COVID stimulus, public-private partnerships, where there's an economic return for private capital, an enduring social benefit for everybody um, with a sort of multifaceted approach are the things that government likes to see because, quite frankly, it de-risks the initiative for government and it shares the burden amongst, you know, taxpayer, you know, government-funded programs and, you know, private capital. So opportunities to work with private capital 
around interventions that you know are proven to work where we can get an incentive framework with government so there's a guaranteed rate of return for private capital i think it's the way of the future and we've got examples of that already we'd love to scale up that's a fantastic uh, suggestion bevan um, a really interesting um, concept thank you for sharing that one with us the final question i have for you today is really back to your organization launch housing for those people um, listening today who might want to get involved and support your organization how can they do that and, and what opportunities are well out there? there's a variety of opportunities i mean the um People can always make um, donations. It's easy for us to convert cash into you know, good service. Uh, there's opportunities for volunteering. Um, I've mentioned young people. We have a range of um, professional volunteers who are connected to those young people, um, helping them think about uh, independence and their own goal setting. We could always uh, have more volunteers. This COVID crisis, interestingly, is exposing um, some weaknesses in our supply chain. A lot of our material aid and food support uh, has been charity-based and involves uh, staff uh, rehandling materials. The, you know, the size of the task we've got now with nearly 800 people in emergency accommodation is to get some really good supply-side systems where we've you know just got big retailers delivering uh, food um, to where people are. Uh, staying uh, using sort of the online apps and the sort of um, ride sharing, code sharing type of facilities. So we've got requirements for technology. We think the world is never going to go back to exactly the way it was. So we've recognised, for instance, that one of the essential care packs, essential ingredients of any care pack for someone who's homeless is actually a smartphone. Uh, if you're wanting someone to take responsibility for their physical health, their mental health, uh, connecting into housing support workers, alcohol and drug, or, or even um, schooling environments uh, who don't have a stable place to live. Um, they need to be able to have a FaceTime connect uh, with, their, with their GP or with their uh, school counsellor. So the idea that somehow mm. a smartphone is a luxury, um, when we're looking at uh, cost-effective service delivery in a stressed environment, uh, which COVID has sort of you know, given us, um, we've come to realise that actually technology is a really essential part of connecting with clients and staying involved and, and giving them the sorts of supports that they can save on their phone. And, uh, you know, you might re recall bushfire victims struggling to get started again because they've lost all their ID and proving who you are can be, can be pretty difficult. For some people who are homeless, they can't even get back into the welfare system, can't even get Centrelink payments because... Uh, they've lost their ID and, you know, creating a, uh, you know, uh, an online library for people saved in the cloud about all of their personal details. Um, you know, these are things that we weren't thinking about before COVID. Now, you know, the, the stress of working in a sort of less face-to-face -face environment has forced us to engage with technology and we think there's a lot of positive opportunities in the future. So uh, big tech companies, uh, big supply-side um, uh, retailers who want to support uh, people, we'd love to, you to come and talk to us and maybe we can work together. That's brilliant. Thank you, Bevan. And um, we really appreciate you sharing your insights uh, with us today. And thank you for all of the work that Launch Housing does um, in Victoria. It's a great privilege for Kingwood Mallisons to work with and alongside your organisation. 
uh, a partnership that uh, we've had for a number of years and, no, and long Thank you. Continue. We really do appreciate the support of the firm. Uh, we know it's always there when we need it and really happy to participate in this uh, conversation. Thanks, Dan. Thanks Thank so you. much. Bye -bye. Have a good day.